Here's the thing though. Welcome to another episode of our podcast, Here's the Thing Though. My name is Saliha and I'm your host for today. And I'm here with my producer slash editor, Mitch Price. Hello, hello, hello. Hey, I do the three hellos. (laughs) (laughs) Stole my style. I'm sorry. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal and Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land that we are recording on today. We'd like to pay our respects to all First Nations people, past, present and future. I'd acknowledge that we're recording on stolen land and that sovereignty was never ceded. So Mitch, how are you? How's it going? I am thrilled. Thrilled? I am excited. I'm elated. Because today (laughs) is a very, very special day. What is today? Today is the 50th episode of the Here's the Thing Though podcast. I know. That's kind of, it's wild that we're at 50 episodes. I know. It doesn't really feel like we've done 50, but at the same time it does. You know what I mean? Yeah. On the one hand, it feels like the podcast started yesterday. But on the other hand, when people talk to me about the first episode, that feels like years ago. Yeah, I don't remember my life not making the podcast. You know, I feel like it's just been something we've been doing forever. But then also it feels like 50 episodes. That seems like seems like a lot. I see people's Spotify wrapped coming out. I mean, we'll we'll get to that soon. But it says people are listening to like over the past year, 1500 minutes of Here's the Thing, the podcast. Like we've made... 1500 minutes worth of podcast to listen to it blows my mind but i'm very excited i feel like this is an achievement it is an achievement i think we should be proud of ourselves especially because like the podcast is obviously something we kind of do for fun for ourselves in the background like you study full-time i work full-time it's our little baby that we've kept alive and like despite changing circumstances and like well actually changing circumstances being the main one because when we started the podcast i was working like two days a week Like, I had all the time in the world for a podcast. And now we're definitely struggling to fit in the time every fortnight. But we're still managing and it's still alive. And we've kept it going. And not just kept it going. I feel like the last few episodes have been really good. I was just going to say, I feel like... It's, it's improves with time as yeah. well. I can't even imagine going back to like the early episodes and having I, to re-listen. I don't ever want to listen to the first I'm episode I'm a bit concerned. Again. People tell me that they like it, but <laughs> I don't know I I get, mean, how good can I they be. I still get messages now uh, about the first episode of people like really liking it, like really positive feedback. It's really lovely. But I always just like get embarrassed a little bit because <laughs> <laughs> we recorded that over a year ago and yeah. like I'm probably a much more articulate person now. Sure. And I feel like I'm even just, you know what, like working in journalism as well and moving into pedestrian. I feel like my speaking style, I'm a lot more measured and like I think a bit more before I speak than I used to. I feel sure. like I was a lot more impulsive as a speaker a year ago and I'm like, it's like looking back at your teenage angst. That's what like thinking yes. of episode one is to me. I totally feel that. But you know I feel like I say this a lot when we're making the, the episodes, but I feel like we're in the golden age. I feel like this is the golden age. <laughs> yeah, it's only downhill from here. Exa- yes. <laughs> I feel like since I'm pretty happy, especially I think all the episodes since episode 40, I'm pretty happy with the last 10. I think I think this is the golden age. Starting I, know, I with feel the, like uh, in the early days, there were some that I really liked. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I that agree. That I, I think hold up to today's episode. No, I, I completely agree. But I'm just saying. The last few are your favorite. Maybe I shouldn't be saying this. I don't want to jinx anything. Maybe you're talking it up too much. And now someone's going to listen to this episode as the first ever episode of Here's the Thing, though, because like maybe they just stumbled across it and then they're going to listen to all the rest of our catalog and they're going to be like, what the fuck were these people talking about? Perhaps. <laughs> the point is, it's a pretty big achievement. Yes. We're pretty proud of ourselves. 
Thank you for everyone who listens and supports the podcast and donates to us on Patreon and PayPal. You've kept the podcast alive and we're here now with 50 episodes thanks to you. So a big thank you and we love you. Cool. Well, that's how I am. How are you? I'm good. I have moved into daytimes now with pedestrian TV. I'm now like a core team news writer, which is really nice to move into daytimes. It's maybe a little bit more complicated for the podcast because we would typically like I would start work at 2.30. So we'd have the whole morning to like plan and record and then we would finish at 2 and then I would start work at 2.30. But now I finish at like 5.30. And by then, who wants to like work more mm. <laughs> so i feel like it's a little bit harder through the podcast but my life is better in like every other aspect because my sleep schedule is like normal again and my sleep schedule too because you've been inspiring me to get up at like a normal time yeah now that i'm up early you're up early which is good yeah. so i feel like lifestyle wise and i feel like i'm eating better like i have a good eating schedule i have breakfast lunch and dinner which i was not doing back then yeah i just like Honestly, the most beautiful part of it is that I see my friends again. Working the after hours when everybody's like free, you know, between 6 and 11, like after work, but before bed is when I work. And then when I'm free before 2.30, everybody else is working or at uni. So I kind of, there are quite a few friends that I barely ever saw, especially because one of my close friends works the morning shifts and I work the night shifts. So we're just on opposite ends of the planet. But the first week at Pedestrian TV in the daytime, I saw so many people just after work. Because I'd finish work and they'd finish work and they'd be like, you're free? And I'd be like, yes. Yes, I am. <laughs> I am free, actually. Mm. So it's been really lovely and it's put me in a really good mood and I obviously love like working with my team and it's just really nice. Um, the other thing I was going to bring up real quick is Instagram Lives. Cause obviously, I said that we would start them after I move into daytime because the reason we stopped them was because I moved into the night shift. However, that's not happening this year. <laughs> I am so... I. I look, I'm happy to be doing the podcast and I'm happy to be working, but I am also burnt the fuck out. And like the transition into daytime, like I'm brain dead after 5.30. Like Instagram lives, if they're coming back, they're coming back next year, probably fortnightly, probably the week that we don't do a podcast episode because I mean, there are heaps of news stories that we really want to talk about that don't make it into the podcast because it's fortnightly. So we're a bit limited. So I think we'll do that. It'd be nice. But that's next year when I'm back and refreshed and not brain dead and struggling to make it through to December, end of December. Let's get into some follow-up because I have a lot to talk about. And honestly, the first thing I'm going to talk about is Lush because you guys have probably seen me talk about it a lot on Instagram. And this is basically a mini episode. My Lush section is a mini episode because I have a lot that I want to say. So I'm just going to dive right into it. Sounds good. To start off, I'm going to read you, which is it's a bit of reading, but I promise it's worth listening to, is Lush's statement on their move to leave social media. So Lush has quit Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Snapchat. And they have framed it as like this really political move to support whistleblowers at Facebook and whatnot and to like stick it to the algorithm. And like, they're definitely framing this as like a really big political move that they have taken that they've given much deliberation for that they can't, they can no longer ignore the politics of this move. And I think their statement is very telling. I have a lot of thoughts, so I feel like I'm just going to read it to you and then, like, explain what I think about it. Yeah, I mean, and as we've mentioned on the podcast before, Lush is a brand that often makes these political moves. Uh, Specifically, we've talked about uh, the campaigns they've done, you know, around Invasion Day, etc. They're all like, you know, it's like a lifestyle brand, a political brand, as much as it's uh, a cosmetic or or bath bomb. Yeah, like Lush, very much the appeal to Lush is not actually the bath bombs. It's the moral security you feel shopping at a store 
that has such defined political takes that typically are pretty like left wing. Whether or not they translate into like real life is maybe a different story, but you know, the image of Lush is really important. So this is like the Lush website, which obviously I will link, but this is their statement. Lush is becoming antisocial and taking a fresh approach to social media with a new global antisocial media policy. From 26th November 2021, the global Lush brand will be turning its back on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and Snapchat until the platforms take action to provide a safer environment for users. This policy is rolling out across all the 48 countries where Lush operates. In the same way that evidence against climate change was ignored and belittled for decades, concerns about the serious effects of social media are going largely ignored now. Lush is taking matters into its own hands and addressing the issues now, not waiting around until others believe in the problem before changing its own behavior. So here's the company statement. Like so many teenagers have experienced before us, Lush has tried to come off social media, but our FOMO is vast and our compulsion to use the various platforms means we find ourselves back on there despite our best intentions. So here we are again, trying to go cold plant-based turkey. Having previously attempted this in 2019, our resolve has been strengthened by all the latest information from courageous whistleblowers, which clearly lays out the known harms that young people are exposed to because of the current algorithms and loose regulation of this new area of our lives. This is a quote from Jack Constantine, who's the CDO and product inventor. As an inventor of bath bombs, I pour all my efforts into creating products that help people switch off, relax, and pay attention to their well-being. Social media platforms have become the antithesis of this aim, with algorithms designed to keep people scrolling and stop them from switching off and relaxing. So back to the company statement. We wouldn't ask our customers to meet us down a dark and dangerous alleyway, but some social media platforms are beginning to feel like places no one should be encouraged to go. Something has to change. We hope that platforms will introduce strong best practice guidelines, and we hope that international regulation will be passed into law. But we can't wait. We feel forced to take our own action to shield our customers from the harm and manipulation they may experience whilst trying to connect with us on social media. So Lush will be signing out from Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Snapchat until these platforms can provide a safer environment for their users. And now I have a quote from the CEO, Mark Constantine. I've spent all my life avoiding putting harmful ingredients in my products. There is now overwhelming evidence we are being put at risk when using social media. I'm not willing to expose my customers to this harm. So it's time to take it out of the mix. And then this is the concluding paragraph. Lush promises not to be completely antisocial. We will do all we can to find new ways to connect, to build better channels of communication elsewhere, as well as using the older tried and tested routes. For now, we can still be found on Twitter and YouTube. No need to click like, subscribe or get notifications. People can just pop along to check us out when they fancy. See here for a full list of where you can find us. Okay. So I know that was a lot of reading and maybe you didn't absorb all of that, but that's okay because I'm going to kind of point out the key bits that I want to talk about and why I fucking hate this so much. I think this is the most disingenuous PR spun bullshit ever for a lot of reasons. (laughs) Oh man. And I say that I feel like literally maybe this is like also part of follow up, but we were talking about Lush in a recent episode Mm -hmm. and I was fully defending them and I take it back. Fuck Lush. I was going to say, this is a retraction. This is a retraction. Part of our Ovira multi-episode saga, Lush was a brand that we defended, maybe even reluctantly, but just as, you know, deposit potentially a brand that isn't, you know, completely disingenuous, that is maybe doing things against their own interests, maybe alienating certain people, you know, and 
to me, at first, this didn't seem like yeah. like too concerning. You were like, I can't believe what what Lush fucking did, and I looked it up. I'm like, oh, I mean, yeah. And then then you started to. And then detail. I actually got into it, and I was like, here's you, my fucking problem. Me, so so let's get into it. Okay, so the first thing that bothers me about this statement is the comparing climate action to this social media cleanse. Like they literally say, for so long people ignored climate action, and now they're doing it with social media, and we aren't going to wait around for everyone to figure it out. Like they figured out climate change, we're going to take action now. And I just find that comparison like completely irrelevant because climate change is like a global disaster that is affecting low-income people the most. And it's like, it's climate change. The world geographically is literally shifting and people and animals are dying. And I don't think climate action is the same as like deleting your Instagram because the difference between climate action and like deleting social media is when you partake in climate action, you're partaking in like a collective activism. Your activism is directly assisting and impacting every other living thing on earth, right? Like by choosing to fight climate change or by choosing to reduce emissions or by choosing to hold fossil fuel companies accountable and protesting by like protecting native land from desecration. Like these are like collectivist actions that are really radical, that like require you to put your body on the line and that have like really meaningful, immediate change, immediate impact, right? What the fuck does deleting your Instagram have to do with that? And they're not comparable because deleting your Instagram is an individual act. It's not a collectivist act. When you delete your Instagram, you're not changing anybody else's experience of Instagram. Lush deleting its social media does not impact me in any capacity. I just will see less pictures of pretty baths on my feed. And like that's pretty much it. Like it's not the stand that they're saying it is. And comparing it to climate action is disingenuous because they're not actually doing anything. Actually, what they're doing is nothing really. Like their stance is that they will not post on social media anymore. So it's the absence of action, not them actually doing something. For sure. No, I mean, I get what they're saying Partly like they're equating how climate change wasn't believed for all this time and saying that social media, no one's talking about, you know, how bad social media is and people aren't taking it seriously enough, which just isn't true. Like it's like, I was like the biggest topic. Literally everyone's nowadays. been scaremongering about social media since it began, but okay. But I feel like I, especially compared to some of their other stuff, it just feels so, so empty. It's such an aesthetic symbolic thing because they're not actually like really doing anything. They're just disengaging exactly. with something and making a big hoo-ha about it and then secondly like look i get where they're coming from i feel like i'm the first person to go on a tirade against social media i feel like i was doing that just before yeah we were literally having this conversation like yesterday and yeah and i think that we they exist in opposition to us i think we there's an antagonistic relationship between a social media platform and its users because I, I think at the end of the day they don't have our best interests in mind. And we've talked about it on the podcast before, but I'm also a really big believer that it's more complicated than that. It's not so simple. It's not that just uh, social media is running your brain, but we actually use it as a tool that we do things with it. You know, it doesn't just inform how we use it and require us to use it in a certain way, but sometimes really important and beautiful things happen through social media because we can use it in new, exciting and imaginative ways. Exactly. And that's something I want to bring up as well. I think it's really reductionistic and I think it forgets that social media is a tool. It's a tool that definitely has algorithmic biases. It definitely pushes you towards white supremacy. Like we know that and there are plenty of studies and investigations on this that you can look up. But also like social media is just important for getting like leftist arguments out as it is right wing arguments. And a lot of young people find their communities 
and their politics on the internet. I mean, I'm like, I think between Mitch and I, like Mitch is, has more negative feelings towards social media than I do. And I'm not saying that's wrong or right. It's just like, I'm more sympathetic to social media just because my experience of social media has been like wholly positive, right? In terms of like my teenage years, I was definitely one of those people that was escaping onto the internet. And I fully discovered left-wing politics on the internet. Like I discovered Black Lives Matter on the internet. I discovered anti-capitalism on the internet. And I personally never like fell down any rabbit holes that were like right-wing, which makes sense. As like a young Muslim woman, like it makes sense that I fell into the politics that I did. But yeah, like social media is a tool that can be used for many different ways. And it's really reductionistic to just be social media bad. But coming back to the statement, something, some other wordings, because I, I did want to talk about specific wording, like with the climate change and the specific image of activism that they're trying to invoke. They also say, like many teenagers before us, which I find fascinating because the idea of like many teenagers before us, A, implies that they are one with the teenagers, that they're part of the same group. It immediately infantilizes the company into like a vulnerable young person. And it also invokes like an image of, I guess, radicalness. Because right now, when we think about teenagers right now and noting that they mentioned teenagers right after they mentioned climate action, like we're immediately thinking of like the Greta Thunbergs of the world and like these young, radical, unapologetic teens who are symbols of 2021 and of 2020 as well. Like last year, it was a lot of really powerful for teenagers talking about gun violence and now it's climate action but teens you know are the image of the revolution right now and i find it really interesting that like lush which is a company not a person has really humanized themselves as like a radical teenager that's what they want their image to be that's what they want you to associate them with and when we think of teenagers we think of this really unapologetic radical politics but we also think of unapologetic radical politics that aren't controversial That's what I find really interesting about this. They have chosen to die on a hill that has no impacts. This is a very strong political position for a position that's not political. Okay, it's a performance of activism without any real change making. They could have chosen to die on a hill that was like (laughs) pro-trans, which, by the way, I'm pretty sure I've had a lot of people in my DMs about Lush in the UK, like management being quite transphobic. And there's a few like controversies which you can look up in your spare time. But the point is like Lush could have taken this really strong stand on any social issue and they chose social media. And you know why that is? Because it's actually not political. Their stance isn't actually political. They're not clear. They talk about algorithms and stuff, but they're not clear which algorithms they're taking a stand against. I mean, everyone hates social media. Like that's just- It's an easy, it's a cop-out. Exactly. And it's like interesting that they don't say, they're not even specific. They don't say algorithms that are pushing teens into white supremacy, for example, which is generally, I feel like what people refer to when they talk about the dangers of social media. It's one of two things. It's either white supremacy or it's eating disorders tend to be the two main issues of algorithms with TikTok, especially and YouTube. And it's funny to me that they don't actually name the issue. It's purposefully vague because it's disingenuous. Like they have used really radical language and imagery to make them look like this really morally sound, strong, convict, like with so much conviction. But their words are empty because what the fuck does any of this mean? Nothing. What are they actually doing? What are the actual impacts? And you know what? The impacts are actually, from what I'm hearing, quite negative. So I've talked to a lot of Lush employees anonymously, like maybe six or seven people who 
funnily enough, all actually had different but equally relevant things to say, which I found quite fascinating, especially because a lot of these were points that I didn't think of. And some of the most interesting things that came up in our conversations, the first one was about content creators, which was like literally didn't even occur to me. So Lush obviously partners with content creators and artists, especially from marginalized communities. They do a lot of like hashtag pass the mic. We talked about it. And that's the stuff that we did like. Yeah, that's what we talked about is like, I remember when they had that really big campaign where they had a First Nations artist who they like had their work all over the stores and they shared their work all over Instagram and they passed the mic. They gave them a platform to use to, you know, advocate for their cause. And that is something really powerful that Lush does on social media. And it's the only thing that I really know about their social media, aside from like aesthetic bath photos, is that they make the effort to create partnerships with content creators that have important things to say, which now will not be happening anymore. Exactly. Because I mean, like we said, that's something that we liked. That was a good thing. And that's exactly what I was trying to get at before, because... We acknowledge, I think everyone can acknowledge that, you know, social media doesn't have your best interest in mind. It is wanting to keep you on the platform for as long as possible uh, to be able to mine your data, to sell it. Uh, And that's why you get sucked down white supremacist rabbit holes, because that captures your attention. Uh, That's what keeps you there for as long as possible. But that doesn't mean that social media hasn't been instrumental in the past decade in so many important movements. Like, would we have Black Lives Matter in the form that it currently is? With that social media. Exactly. That started off as like a bit of a hashtag for a lot of us that are removed from the protest, right? Like Black Lives Matter was obviously a really physical form of activism in America, Mm. but it's taken off in Australia and we wouldn't even know about it without social media because a lot of media, like news places weren't reporting on this. It spread through social media. And, you know, even the climate protests in Australia, they're all organized on social media. And not to say that, you know, protests never happened before social media, because that would be a ridiculous thing to say. But it's clear that social media activism in some ways does lead to physical activism and creates the grounds. And that's what I'm trying to talk about. It's like, it's a complicated relationship because these social media platforms I don't think are really necessarily good for you, but that doesn't mean that we can't use them to organize and to do positive stuff. Well, at the end of the day, they're tools. Exactly. At the end of the day, they're tools. And Lush was using social media as a positive tool. And it's really odd for them to decide to opt out of that when they were actually doing something good. And yeah, it fucks over creators that were probably hoping to have a partnership with them. And Lush had an opportunity to do something good there. And they chose not to. And I think that's telling. Like, I think that's reflective of the fact that they are hiding from actually doing anything radical or interesting. I feel like they want to maintain this image of being political without actually being political. The other thing I wanted to talk about, which I talked about briefly in my Instagram stories, if you follow me, is that another person mentioned that really this just would push their users into like their EDM, into their like daily newsletter, into their own database and i find that fascinating because really what lush would be doing whether purposefully or not is centralizing and monopolizing user data because they just effectively cut out the middleman now instead of going to instagram to know what sales are happening at lush you'll sign up to their letter because you still want to stay in contact with this company that you're loyal to and so they're just going to build up their user database with new email addresses and phone numbers and blah 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 because yeah like we like lush really goes on sale so we want to know when they do and normally i would see that through instagram so I'd find that very interesting, especially because that kind of data is incredibly, incredibly valuable. And it's valuable for Lush as a company that sells products and for their marketing team to have access to like a database of email addresses and connections. Which is what Facebook does, right? Yes. That's why Facebook is bad. 
Exactly. But now they're just, you know. But I assume that's what they would also be doing because they do have a like newsletter and every company has a database of your email addresses. It's not like, you know, oh my God, Lush, the evil corporation will do this. Every company does it. Every company. Every single company has your email address if you've bought things. Oh, even like news sites have their database where they send their daily roundup of articles to you. Like it's just common practice to have a daily newsletter or an EDM. And that's definitely what's going to happen with Lush. Like it's inevitable. If they they literally say that they're going to try more traditional methods of contacting you now that they aren't on Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat or TikTok. So I find that also very interesting. It's like you're not just opting out of like this data stuff. You're just monopolizing and centralizing it so that you're the only person there's no middleman you don't have to rely on instagram to get you these connections one of the other things kind of maybe the more interesting points around this and ones i think we're thinking a bit more about the future but some staff mentioned concerns because they were like obviously like because lush is opting out of social media like a lot of the staff facebook pages and stuff are getting taken down as well which is how people like communicated with their staff members and with their managers and like whatever and with the removal of these groups and facebook pages or at least the discouraging of these groups and facebook pages it makes it a lot harder for staff to communicate with each other and when you make it hard for staff to communicate with each other you inevitably fall into issues around unionizing and union busting and that's not to say that lush is trying to union bust because, like, again, I don't know how, how deeply they've even thought about this. It might literally just be some, like, PR person thinking they're doing something good. But that is going to be an effect of opting out of social media is the lack of accountability. Because now as well, when Lush does fuck up, when they partake in another wage theft, for example, they don't have social media for you to bombard and make and humiliate them on, which is how we actually get a lot of accountability. A lot of brands end up apologizing for bad behavior or bad campaigns because their social media becomes flooded with people calling them out. It also means that if you want to communicate with uh, your with staff, with other people in your company or your workplace, you have to do it through more formal channels. You know, everything becomes formalized. You never have those sort of incidental interactions outside of a very particular work context, which just makes things more manageable. And like, I think it's potentially very hypothetical to say, and I don't think it's intentional that this is like a union busting thing, but it, it, that's just what happens when you restrict channels of communication to be reduced to a very formal, traditional way of communicating. Yeah. And like, I guess the point that I'm trying to get across talking about this Lush thing is like how empty it is and how it's really important in these moments to A, remember that this is a corporation. This is a company with like thousands of workers who, by the way, are not treated super well. Like, I mean, aside from the $4 million wage theft that Lush admitted to, there's also claims from staff members that like, they ban people in the warehouse from speaking languages that aren't English, which is really fucked up considering like most of their warehouse workers are people of color who are from low income backgrounds that obviously might speak English as a second language and to ban speaking languages other than English is pretty fucked up. Also like something I literally found out like a couple of days ago from somebody who is close to a Lush employee is that, you know, those stickers that say like this product was made by, and then it'd be like a drawing of like Fred and the date. It's not made by Fred. Fred is the manager. Fred is the person overseeing the operations. That's very interesting. Which, yeah, exactly. Because it's dishonest because it's not, he didn't put it together. He's just the person, he's the person in power in that position. He's the boss. I have lots of thoughts about those types of stickers, but we'll have to save it for another episode. (laughs) I feel like I've already talked about Lush forever. But yeah, I hope that kind of clears up why this is so fucked. And we should be really critical of Lush right now. And we should keep an eye on them. And lastly, the last thing I'm going to mention, because I know we've been talking forever and we really got to move on, is that if they really gave a fuck about evil algorithms, they would not have stayed on YouTube. But Lush is still on YouTube. 
And I find that very funny because YouTube is like the most notorious social media second, or probably still above TikTok. TikTok and YouTube are the two social media that are known for funneling you into right-wing content. But yes, this is all fucked. It's all incredibly disingenuous. There are literally no positive impacts from them opting out of social media. It doesn't help anyone except themselves because now they can't be held accountable and they've effectively removed the middleman in a lot of their communication with your data. Anyway, so I know that was very long, bit of a mini episode. It was like not long enough for an hour long episode, but too long for follow-up, but it's in follow-up and it's there now. Moving on to the next thing I want to talk about, which a lot of you have requested my take on. And I will say I have mixed opinions. And this is about Brooke Blurton and Abby Chatfield and the reality TV drama that has been happening for the last two weeks and its relationship to identity politics, which I wrote a bit about at Pedestrian, which I mean, even now, like things have changed so much since I wrote that article and my, my mind is still constantly shifting. But here's the recap. So for those of you who don't give a fuck about reality TV, and I imagine it's quite a few of you, Brooke Blurton was this year's Bachelorette. And that was a big deal because Brooke Blurton is bi or pansexual. I think she alternates between both identities and she's Aboriginal as well. And that's important and obviously a massive fucking milestone because we've never really had bachelorettes in Australia that aren't white. And so her being indigenous and her being bi is huge and amazing. And it's like a moment of representation for everybody. And a lot of people have been really watching her season because they want to support this because there's a pressure, obviously, for this season to do fucking well so that in the future we get more diverse reality TV casting. So how is Abby Chatfield relevant to all this? Abby, I mean, a lot of you would know Abby Chatfield. Like, I feel like we have a re- like our listenership overlaps quite a lot. Um, you, you saw that with the Spotify wrapped. Yeah, things. a lot of people who shared us on their Spotify wrapped also had Abby Chatfield's podcast on their Spotify wrapped. So there's a lot of overlap. I mean, I've been on one of her podcast episodes. But Abby was on The Bachelor in like 2019. She was runner up. People really loved her for being like unapologetically like feminist, really calling men out on their bullshit, blah, blah, blah. She's now got like a Instagram slash influencer empire. Um, and her podcast is like very much about feminism. And she also like has a reputation for like being progressive and educated and, you know, woke even like talks a lot about Aboriginal rights, talks a lot about gay rights, talks a lot about sex positivity, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Abby and Brooke are friends. Fast forward to not long before the finale. So we're reaching top five and one of Brooke's booted contestants ends up in a relationship with Abby Chatfield and that all kind of leaks. They're seen pashing before he's booted off the show. And it's like a, it's a drama. People are hating on Abby now because like she's selfish for spoiling Brooke's season, blah, 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 blah. Fast forward to like the day before the finale and Abby uploaded, uh, she essentially hard launched her new boyfriend, Conrad, uh, on Instagram. <laughs> it's like she is unveiling a new product. Yeah. She launched her new boyfriend. She launched her new boyfriend. And oh. it fully is a product unveiling because when yeah. you're an influencer, your life is a commodity. So she, it was practically a product launch of Conrad, her new boyfriend. And this is the premise of the beef that we're going to briefly discuss because there was a lot of criticism towards Abby for doing that the night before the finale because people, including initially, allegedly, Brooke, which has now been confirmed, but at the time, allegedly, Brooke was really upset that Abby did that because it took away from the limelight of her finale and people, especially a lot of women of colour, were really mad at Abby for that. 
and were kind of calling her out for white feminism and for being like tactless and thoughtless and posting about this and taking away from Brooke's moment, which was a really big moment for not just Brooke, but bisexual people and anybody from the First Nations community as well. And then there's Abby's fans who are like, it's not that deep. She just shared a picture of a relationship. Everybody needs to relax. And like, it's not a big deal and people shouldn't be upset. And I'm like in the middle because it's come out now that Brooke was really upset. And Brooke put up an Instagram story essentially calling Abby out, saying that Abby posting that thing of Conrad the night before the finale was selfish. It was narcissistic. It's white privilege. And like it's, you know, just essentially like ideas around white feminism. And Abby, after Brooke's statement went up, put up an apology saying that she's sorry that she didn't think about that this could even be a problem. Like she didn't realize that her post could potentially take away from the Bachelorette finale. And, you know, she's sorry. And you're probably wondering why the fuck are we talking about this? But like we're talking about it because everybody is talking about it. And that in itself is interesting because I personally like don't care that much about Abby's post. Like I don't really care that she put up a post of Conrad. I agree. Like honestly, if Brooke didn't care, I would not give a fuck. And I wrote an article before Brooke came out saying like, why are we fighting about this? Who gives a fuck? Brooke hasn't said anything herself. It seems like everybody is just picking fights in the name of Brooke. Uh, Brooke has now come out and said that she cares and she's really quite upset about it. So I retract that because I was wrong. And I like, I get Brooke's position and she's valid and her upset is valid. And I think it's like, yeah, sure. Like thoughtless and tactless for Abby to put up a post. But I also just think that we're like really concentrating our outrage in the wrong place because this is not where politics is. And I feel like people are kind of getting confused and like the boundaries between real life politics and online identity politics are getting very, very blurred. People are dying on this hill like they're fighting for Black Lives Matter. And it is not the same. I know. I, I totally get where you're coming from. I mean, I'm mostly hearing about a lot of this for the first time here. But it's really reminding me of our episode like five episodes ago on, on celebrity gossip. Because it's like, ah, like it's, it's about finding that balance of like, this is sort of completely inconsequential, right? But is there something that we can take from it? Yeah. But are people trying too hard to take something from it? That's where I really find the schism to, to be at. Because this is absurd, right? This is a little bit absurd. Yeah. And like, I feel like that's going to be an unpopular opinion. I think people are going to be shocked that I'm saying that because this is clearly an issue of white feminism, which I'm very vocal about. And I think people are going to be like, why aren't you fucking outraged? Why aren't you like actively advocating for Brooke? She's a First Nations woman of color who's had her limelight stolen. And my response to that is, this is The Bachelorette. Like, we're talking about The Bachelorette finale and the amount of views that got. I don't care that much about The Bachelorette. I watched every episode of Brooke's season because I wanted to support her and I like her. I like Brooke. And, you know, like, I like what she stands for. And I think I think it's amazing that we got somebody on The Bachelorette. But like I said in our Token Diversity episode yonks ago, I think that was our third episode, diversity is not where activism lies. I want more diversity on our screens, but I like more diversity is not going to stop black deaths in custody. More First Nations people on TV is something we want, but we're conflating it with other politics that it's unrelated to. They're two different things. Yeah, it's shit that Brooke season tanked because it did. It fucking tanked. And like, yeah, some of that is probably because people are racist and homophobic and don't want to watch or buy First Nations woman on TV. But also like The Bachelorette as a franchise is outdated and has very problematic ideas of relationships and intimacy that it perpetuates. And putting a First Nations woman as the lead in The Bachelorette is not just Channel 10 being a good person. It's them trying to figure out if The Bachelorette is dead. 
this is falling a lot into liberalism and we just got to be careful because like we've said in our celebrity gossip episode, like there is definitely benefits to gossiping. And like I have been really on top of the Brooke Abbey drama like every day, but not because I think that like this is an important moment in politics. The reason I was interested in it is because of the reasons we like celebrity gossip. Like it's interesting to talk about. We can like talk about it with our friends and figure out what our morals are. And like I can, we can discover our boundaries of relationships. Oh yeah, like I be do that to, to Brooke and their friends. Oh my God, if my friend, you know, like lightweight gossip that is like beneficial in forming relationships. But I'm not using this gossip as a signifier for wokeness. I'm not like, oh, oh, you don't care about the Abby Brooke thing. Oh, you're a racist. Oh, you don't like First Nations people. You don't think they should be on TV. Like it's not that deep in that regard. It's just not. And I think people are getting really caught up in identity politics. Brooke is an influencer (laughs) and Abby is an influencer And they are beefing and it has relevance in conversations around white feminism for sure. But like, it's really not that important. Well, I was going to say like, and I'm saying this as a complete outsider, mostly based based upon, you know, what what you're saying here. But, you know, Brooke calling Abby narcissistic, like, yeah, she's an influencer. That's her job, right? Everyone is just displaying things about their life at like opportune times and everyone is playing a game of narcissism and that's fine. Like, but that's just what it is. Like, I don't know. You get what I'm saying? I do. And I think that's interesting because I think people like are very inconsistent on their stance of influences and what they expect from them and when they expect it from them. And I think we're also forgetting that Brooke is not like an activist and Abby is an influencer. They're both influencers. Brooke is First Nations and bisexual and is having an historic moment. But like, she's also an influencer. And I think people are putting Brooke on a pedestal. And I think people are like, oh my God, if you're not invested in Brooke's finale drama, you are a racist. Because clearly all good activists who support First Nations people care about Brooke's finale. And this is the problem. This is what I wanted to talk about because it's like, yeah, it's fine to care about this issue and even be passionate about it. I've fucking written about it. I've talked about it a lot in and off Instagram but I'm not conflating it with like actual political change. And I think people got to like reevaluate their stance a little bit on that one. Anyway, let's get into our topic for today. So the thing we're going to talk about today has kind of come up in my conversations with followers for months now, if not like since last year, whenever I put out questionnaires, like asking for, you know, what topics do you guys want us to discuss or What do you want to hear us talk about? One thing that comes up time and time and time again is the conflicts between friendships and politics. I get a lot of questions asking things like, should I be friends with people that have, you know, problematic opinions? Should I cut off my childhood friends that are now racist? How tolerant must I be of these ideas? And am I a bad person or a bad friend or, you know, a divisive person? If I choose to cut off these friends that have really shit politics, like what do I do? I'm feeling stuck and it's just a difficult situation because like these are people that I've had, you know, lifelong friendships with and now we really don't see eye to eye with politics and it's like, you know, they're fighting me on Instagram or whatever. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. Like there's, and there's, you know, different forms that this conflict arises in. You know, I think the one that I maybe hear about the most is more of an online version. So like your high school friends on Instagram are like, replying to your Black Lives Matter post and saying not everything's about race but then there's also like people who actually have like real life friendships and then they have found out the dark secret of bigotry that that person has been hiding and it's just like a difficult situation 
And it is a difficult situation. I feel like probably just from listening to us, like you wouldn't assume that my instant response is, yeah, cut them off. And like, that's the short answer for sure. It is. Like my general stance is, yeah, don't be friends with racists. But I do acknowledge that this is probably a little bit more complex than that. So that's my short answer. But this episode will be my very long answer where we dive into like what we actually think friendships are and what we want from friendships and what standard we should hold our friendships to and how they reflect on us and kind of all the little things that eventually would inform your opinion on whether or not you want to be friends with someone after finding out what their politics are. So let's get into it. So I think there are three main points that we want to talk about here. And the first one is, what does friendship actually mean? Which sounds silly because a friend is a friend, obviously. But I feel like if you had to actually define friendship, how would you define it? When I asked this, when we were recording the podcast, I actually really had to think about it for a second. Some deep introspection. Fully though, I don't... Like, I mean, I have quite intimate friendships. I'm the kind of person that typically has few friends that are really close to me, right? But then to think about it, I'm like, oh, there's kind of a wide variety of people that I know. And now in my head, I'm categorizing which of them I consider friends and which are acquaintances. And just that introspection in itself was really interesting and kind of just enlightening to who I, I, like, I had a bit of a moment. (laughs) I feel like I learned something about myself um, while answering this question. But when I think of what friendship means and like, what that relationship is. I would say it's a relationship with a person that I like. I First of all, I like them as a person. I want to be around them. I enjoy their company. And I feel a sense of like loyalty or duty or care for them in some regard. I care about what happens to them. I'm invested in their life. And that feeling is mutual as well. It's an important one because I don't think it counts as a friendship if you're really obsessed with a person and they're not obsessed with you. <laughs> Or maybe it's just a very, very sad friendship. <laughs> but, yeah. Or a parasocial. Well, exactly. Then I guess friendship. it becomes a parasocial relationship. But yeah, so to me, like that's the kind of defining feature of a friendship. It's a person, first of all, you have to like them. You have to like them. Uh, you have to want to actually spend time with them and be around them. And importantly, and maybe something that's not spoken enough about is I think you have to have like a duty of care a little bit towards them. Like you would, you would help them. And And all of the above is reciprocal. Yes. And all of that is reciprocal. Okay. Now that we've cleared that up, that's the first kind of thing I think we had to clear up. The second would be like, what do you want out of your friendship? What is the purpose of a friendship? What do you get? Are they good for you? I would assume so. I hope so. Yeah. Because if I had, like, I think, look, I think people get different things out of friendships. Like, I think the answer differs from person to person. For me, I'm probably more of the needy type of friend. You know, I want friendships that I feel really loved in. I love feeling appreciated in my friendships. I'm a really affectionate friend. I rely on my friendships for a lot of affection and validation. Uh, I also need my friendships to be places that I feel safe in. I need to be able to feel like I can be myself and I can share about my life and I can talk about my deepest, darkest traumas. But safety is really important and I will bring that up later. And then the third thing that I personally need from a friendship is that I feel like obviously I need to be able to have fun with them, but in a way that like we need to be able to go to things together or like you come over and we can just hang out. We need to be able to hang out, you know, which something like it seems obvious, but I have a lot of friendships that are like purely online friendships and I wouldn't hang out with them, which is kind of interesting because then I was like, are we really friends? I don't know, but I need a friendship that I can like, you know, spend time with. And then my final point 
that I came up with out of my four points was I need to be able to have interesting and meaningful conversations with that friend that like actually go somewhere. We can like have breakthroughs together. We can like have really interesting discussions about things that aren't like gossiping about other people. You know, we need to be able to vibe on some level. Yeah, no, I think that's really accurate. I think you've described yourself uh, well, and that's how I would describe your, I guess, relationship with friendships in general. And I don't know, I don't really think about myself much, but I really try to to sit down and, and think for this today. And I think it's a little bit different for me. I think for me, you know, it's important that you vibe with the person, but I feel like for you, it's almost more about like a general, really intimate, almost in some ways, like ineffable sort of connection. Yeah, we. You know I, I have mean. to like, I have to love you. Like for love, sure. love is important to a friendship for me. I have to love you, which not, which other people can just be friends with someone they like, but I have to love you to be friends with you. For sure. And I think, you know, I, I, I love all my friends as well, but I think that your fourth point about really having those deep conversations, uh, I think that's maybe the most important and maybe sort of overall important aspect for me. I think when I think about it, a lot of my friendships are built upon sort of mutual interests I think having good vibes will only really take me so far. And, you know, I've had many friends who, as my interests interests have changed, friendships with them have slowly faded out. And, you know, I think they're good people, they're good vibes. But it's that having those mutual interests are really important. And that doesn't mean that I need to necessarily find people with the same interests because in my life it's been that the people I've surrounded myself with, we've grown the same interests at the same time. It's not that my friends were super political from when I met them in high school, but we've developed the same politics yeah, together. Yeah, you've grown together. Yeah, the same ideas, the same interests in, in culture and art. So, yeah, I think that's what's important for me. Yeah, and like, this is what I mean, where like people will have different things they value in a friendship. Mine is definitely intimacy and emotional connection, and yours is more like a wider, just like hobbies together and like talking about things that you're both interested in, which like I can actually forego if I have good enough vibes and love for someone, we don't need to have much in common. Which is interesting. And I think the reason we wanted to talk about like our different friendships as like totally very, we're actually quite different people. I think Mitch and I, he's quite introverted. I'm really extroverted. We have like different ways that we develop relationships. But the reason we're kind of going to depth about how different our friendships are is because at the end of the day, we still have quite similar opinions on this topic, which we'll get to in a second. And now we're up to like the final, I guess, component of my discussion on friendship. So we talk about like what a friendship is, what we want out of a friendship. And then the final thing is like, how does this friendship reflect on you and your morals as a person? Which I think people would listen to that and be like, how is this related? But I think it is because I think everybody is at least a little bit narcissistic. We love to understand ourselves and we love to express ourselves all the time. We do it in the clothes that we wear. We do it in the music that we listen to. Like everybody wants to share who they are in some capacity. We all are individualistic. We all have style, etc. And I actually think friendships form a really important part of that. I think friendships in a way can also be accessories. And I don't mean that in like a dismissive or cold (laughs) way, which is- It sounds a bit cold. I know it sounds cold, but I just mean like when you go out with your friends, they represent a part of who you are. Yeah. They reflect on you in the same way that like you wear your favorite band t-shirt out. You know what I mean? Like you make a choice- to publicly show your affection for this thing or person and it reflects on you. And friendships do that too. We just don't do it as actively, but we do do it. And it's like, you know, when you go out with your bestie and you wear matching clothes and stuff, like you're you're doing that all the time. And 
there is like a level of publicity that we show with our friendships and we see it like you know in a if we're going to talk about more general ways we see it in the way influencers like will make very strategic relationships with each other we see it in the way celebrities will be spotted together for certain clout like we all kind of do that on some level and who we are close friends with actually says a lot about us and that is kind of what maybe pushes us into the actual discussion we're getting into today it's like I personally think friendships reflect a lot about you and I find it pretty easy to judge somebody based on who their friends are and I also understand if people judge me by who my friends are and hopefully that actually says good things about me because I love the people I associate myself with. I feel like, you know, with this dilemma that people are having about like cutting off friends and like, am I a bad person? It stems from ideas that we hear from centrists about it being a point of maturity or like superiority to have friends with diverse opinions. It's something that they brag about. Yeah. I feel like- It's about being very sort of objective and neutral. You know, I don't lean too far in any direction. I just take ideas as they come. You know, everyone needs to have healthy debates. Yes. And, you know, we see this, you know, all the time, but it's especially this time of year that we get- like these articles and think pieces coming out, especially in America, because, you know, it's just Thanksgiving. And Christmas is coming. And Christmas is coming. So everyone talks about meeting with family or seeing people, maybe going back to your hometown and having to, to face the people that really you've grown apart from. And it's really, you know, these two sides, you know, the, the one that thinks you really got to stand strong with what you believe in. And the other one, which is about, you know, it's all about family and it's about not trying to be too divisive. And if you are getting into arguments it's reflective of maybe your character in a way like that's a bad thing yeah exactly and I've come across that a lot just like in reading articles and it's come up a lot in work chats as well because I was having a conversation with a coworker about how I used to not so much now because I don't face it as much now but I used to really dread this time of year because this is the time of year that all my white friends are going to tell me how racist their family are and I don't want to fucking hear that shit right but like I saw an article literally today that was like, should we really cut off political friends? And it was like very centrist and it very much framed having friends of diverse political opinions as the morally, like a moral issue. Like you are morally superior for doing that. You're a tolerant and kind person for doing that. And people who don't do this are like mean, horrible goblins, (laughs) right? Politics have rotted their brain. Yeah, like, they're just horrible, like, you know, all these, like, angry women with hairy armpits. Like, it was, yeah. The kind of politics that we expect to see from, like, these centrist pieces. But I find this interesting because I think that's the moral dilemma that a lot of our listeners are having that are asking me these questions. I think we're so used to consuming centrist ideas that tell us that not tolerating racist or any kind of bigoted behavior actually makes us a bad person. And I just like, how did we get it so backwards? That is, it's gaslighting, right? I feel like all these centrists have gaslit left-wing people into thinking that they're problematic for not accepting problematic behavior when actually it's the problematic behavior that is problematic. (laughs) That leads us to like our stance. And our stance is, yeah, we're not friends with people that are bigoted and we generally will cut them off. And look, Having some differences in opinion is fine. I think when I say like we're going to cut off friends with like problematic opinions, I don't mean like small things. I mean like friends who are actually racist or friends who like 
don't think trans people should have rights or friends who are like, you know, homophobic. Like these are quite serious political issues. And a lot of people aren't like just homophobic. A lot of people are kind of in the middle where they're like a little bit problematic, but they're well-meaning. And I'm maybe not necessarily talking about those people. And I don't know who the listeners are talking about when they ask me, I guess. Like, I don't know what your specific situation is. If we're talking about people who are just outright problematic, like they outright are bigoted, then like, yeah, fuck them. You don't need to be friends with them. You don't need to like validate their politics by being a good person and then letting them associate themselves with you and you being a good person. Because honestly, that's what happens. And this is like a tangent, but I did notice that happening with me in the past. Like obviously as somebody who's quite outspoken politically, like the amount of like moral clout people want to have by associating with you even when they themselves have fucked beliefs especially when like you know the podcast is kind of growing in the early days like my social media presence is growing people who like don't know me super well or know me through online interaction will like use their connection to me to validate their opinions when their opinions are shit and certainly not things that I have endorsed So it's like, in a way, when you allow people who have problematic opinions to like stay your friend, you endorse them. No, yeah. I mean, I think that's really true. And the honest truth is, is that this is going to be different for every person. I think people have different tolerances of what they can put up with. But the problem is, is that I think for small issues, and maybe we'll get into maybe what smaller differences are, you know, I think that is healthy. And I, and I think you can have a really fulfilling and positive and a relationship you don't have to be, I guess, even embarrassed of having with those differences. But a lot of people are just straight up seem fine, but then they'll say something extremely transphobic because to them that seems completely fine and not strange and not even like that radical of an opinion. And I think at that point, like... I don't know. I don't think I can really defend maintaining those types of friendships where like racist, transphobic, really inexcusable stuff that is not only just a political opinion with a capital P, but is really devaluing, dehumanizing an entire group of people. Because I think you have to differentiate politics from politics, you know, <laughs> yeah. like a politics with a with a capital P and then a politics with a lowercase p, which is more everyday life and the stuff that we talk about on this podcast, because I don't think we really talk much about politics with a capital P, because when I think of that, I'm thinking of like parliamentary politics, policies, etc., all this really official stuff. But we're not really that interested in that. We don't really think that's as consequential as people make it out to be. And I think a lot of people writing these sort of articles are thinking about, you know, in America, it's, it's do you vote Democrat or do you uh, vote Republic? Here, is it Labour, Liberal or Greens? That's the sort of arguments people are having. But no, so many of these arguments are the lowercase p, the sort of the everyday, who is allowed to live and how? It's not, we're not talking about policy. We're not having these debates. It's about, oh, you think these people don't deserve to live. You don't think these people are legitimate or valid. I don't even know how much common ground we can have in this discussion. And I don't know if we can really avoid this, if we can just tiptoe around this debate and I can still view you as a person that I should be associating with. And also, I don't think those are mutually exclusive because I think something really interesting about that Republican versus Democratic debate, because that's where a lot of this comes from. Like a lot of our, a lot of the stuff that bleeds into Australian politics about like, can you be friends with people that have differing politics comes from American conversations about Democratic versus Republican. But like what 
those conversations don't seem to take into account is like it's actually reductive to pretend that like Democrats are not being friends with Republicans because they're Republicans. It's like, no, they're not being friends with Republicans because Republicans support policies that dehumanize real people. That's it. People want to set these uh, these articles up like it's a tribe mentality, you know, like, oh, this is my team and you're on the other team. So I can't be friends with you because that's how people like thinks that these like leftists, for example, are acting. It's like it's like a sports team, but it's not a sports team. It's real lives and real people. And we actually stand for something. I also think it's a bit of a white thing in a way. Not that all white people are like this and not that people of color don't do this because they do. But I find it really interesting the way white people play politics like they play sport. Yes, yes. Politics are a sport for them. It's so easy to dehumanize someone's rights and to debate their livelihood when you've never experienced your rights being threatened yourself. Some like a lot of the debates that come out of like American topics here will be like, you know, the like devil's advocate white guy that like, it finds it so easy to debate gay marriage and like whether gay people should have rights because of course he's never experienced that kind of dehumanization. It's so easy to dehumanize others because you have no idea what the fuck you're doing. And I think that happens a lot here because people will be like, oh my God, I can't believe you're cutting me off just over a political difference. But by doing that, they've just like completely reduced and undermined the entire issue because it's not about necessarily who you actually vote for because if you voted for another independent party, we would still be friends. It's because you're voting for this particular one that is doing these horrible things. I find that a lot in Australian politics. Like I have friends who vote Labour or who vote Greens, but I don't have friends that vote Liberal. And it's like if it was really just about political parties, then I would only be able to be friends with people that voted for one specific one. And it's like, I have friends who vote independent, I have friends who vote Greens, and I have friends who vote Labour, but it's fucking Liberal that we like have beef over because Liberal is the most openly racist uh, party. And like by voting for them, you align yourself with like quite openly racist things. It's a kind of a new ballpark. Yeah, I mean, we've come into contact with people who are like, oh, I vote uh, liberal because that's what my parents voted and that's how they grew up. And it's these type of people who are writing these sort of articles and having these sort of conversations yeah. about, oh, why can't we all just get along? Like, no, because this is purely something you don't engage with or it's a purely sort of intellectual fun activity. We're just having a debate like these aren't really super consequential things because at the end of the day, they're just stances for you. Like they don't actually affect you. They're not lived experience. Yeah. And, I'm, and I'm saying that, you know, of course, as a white person, and like as a white cis straight man. <laughs> yeah, like the reality is that these issues, I can only get so close to them, mm. you know. And so it's important, I guess, for me to, for them to not just be stances, to not, for them not to just be debates. Because I think a lot of people asking this question about who they associate with are able to be in that position of, I don't know what to do because they have a choice. Yeah. Because they have a choice of what to do. Whereas a lot of people don't have the choice because it's like, you don't respect me as a person. Yeah. And also the decisions like, already made for you. Yeah. And also like with, I liked what you said about it's the people that like fucking casually vote liberal and don't think twice about it that are having these discussions. Cause they'll be like, well, why can't we be friends? Why can't we respect each other? And it's like, yeah, why can't we babes? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you tell me you're the one who's racist. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? And I find it really interesting that it is these problematic people that will push the responsibility of friendship onto you. And it's like, no, 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 no. You should be owning my friendship because you're the one that fucked me over. What am I apologizing for? You know, I feel like a lot of problematic people will be like, oh my God, why can't we be friends? Why are you being so political? Why are you ruining a good thing? And it's like, no, why did you ruin a good thing? 
And I think that's something we have to unlearn because a lot of people in my DMs will talk about like feeling like they're annoying or they're the problematic one. They're the divisive one. They're the one that's causing problems. And it's like, it's not you causing problems. That person is causing problems by being racist. <laughs> like it's not your fault and you aren't morally incorrect for not wanting to be around racism. And don't let these people gaslight you because that's what's happening. They'll be like, oh my, you're overreacting. You know, why can't you just be kind? Why can't you? It's like, why can't you be kind? If you were a kind person, you'll be fucking transphobic. <laughs> like, you know, it's just, I think it's such a convoluted issue, but it doesn't have to be. In a way, it actually is really simple. Either we choose to be around that behavior and validate it or we don't. And I know it's not that simple when you have people like relatives, but I guess we're not talking about those people. We're not talking about people that you have no choice to be around. We're talking about when you have a choice to, and you like aren't sure if you want to continue a friendship because they are really, you know, bigoted in some way. Like, yeah, you don't have to. And I guess I'm reassuring you. I'm giving you that reassurance because- you probably know you don't have to. It's why you can even consider it. But this is us giving you a validation because there is a difference between your friends just having minor political differences like voting for Greens or Labour or being reform versus revolution. Or like a good example is like a lot of our friends not being vegan. Like that's not grounds for us to terminate our friendship with them. That's something that we can kind of still be friends about. But then there's like, if my friends were Nazis, like I I couldn't do that. (laughs) There's a big difference. And you know what? Some of our friends like, know people and that kind of tolerate people that are Nazis, which to me is absurd and unacceptable. And then I feel disrespected. And then I have to reconsider my stance and my closeness to those people. But that's not a reflection of me. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. And maybe something I didn't even consider. It's not just that you don't want to be hanging out with Nazis because of how that, you know, reflects on you and how that affects your life. But what about your friends of color? You know, how does it make them feel? Yeah, exactly. It's not just about you and and do you want to be associating with these people, but what about the people that actually this affects? Yeah, and I can speak from that, you know, from a very personal experience there because, God, I've definitely felt a lot of hurt and frustration when I have friends that, you know, I really love and I really care about. And they're, they're not racist or anything like that to me. Like, we have really great conversations. I feel like we're on the same wavelength. And then they are friends with other racists. And it's like, how are you friends with a racist and friends with me when I know you're not racist? Or at least I think you're not racist. I'm pretty sure you're not racist. How are you tolerating that behavior? And how does it make me feel? And, you know, that was a really, really big issue for me in university because there was a lot of racism in university. There was a lot of anti-Muslim racism that I was experiencing from other people of color. So not even like white people because I didn't have a lot of white friends in uni, but from like a lot of my East Asian friends. There was a lot of racism. And it's like my my East Asian friends weren't racist, but all of their friends were. And like then we would hang out in a group and I would just have to like be there knowing that these people are racist, but my friends aren't racist. And it's just like a fuck situation. And yeah, you know what? I'm not really friends with any of those people anymore. Because to me, I was like, I deserve friends who don't put up with this shit. I deserve friends that would back me up when I'm not there, right? Like I deserve friends that would defend my humanity regardless of where I am and if I'm friends with them because it shouldn't just be like a loyalty to a cause for me it should be like a moral situation like you should always fight against racism and homophobia and sexism and transphobia and ableism and etc all the time because you want to be a good person and when you don't it doesn't just reflect on you it makes everyone around you who is oppressed they feel it too and they see it everybody sees it 
Something else I wanted to talk about was people who date people that have really messed up politics, which like is not something I even really knew people did until a couple of years ago. I mean, back when I was in like the Shameless podcast group and I was kind of just being known for what I do. I had a lot and I mean like literally every day I had white women in my DMs asking me for advice on what to do about their racist and sexist boyfriends. These are white women dating white men who are actively racist and misogynistic. And they would be like, what should I do? My boyfriend is super misogynistic. He doesn't think women should do X, Y, Z. He thinks men are better than women. And it's just like, you're sleeping with that man? Like, you're like allowing him to behave this way and like still be with you? Um, And the same, like especially white women, it was like, of course, always white women. They'd also like tell me how racist their boyfriends are and then be like, help, what should I do? And that used to fucking infuriate me, to be honest, because it's like you chose to be with a racist. Like it's a bit late to be coming for advice now. You like got into a relationship with someone that is racist. You are like actively validating their racism by doing that. And like not only is it, first of all, lacking a bit of self-respect to date someone that's a misogynist, like what are you doing, first of all? Like as, look, I, I know that it happens and I don't mean to blame people, but it's very interesting when you see like, really kind of faux, woke, white feminist women who, like, think that they're actually political then do that stuff, it's like, "Mm, something is wrong here. Love is love. No, it's not. (laughs) Not in this regard. Because, look, there... I mean, this is a very slight tangent, but there is definitely a pattern with, like, white women who, like, try and build their brand, not just, like, celebrities, but just, like, random people who build their personal brand on, like, wokeness and dating problematic guys. It's totally a thing. I've seen it really often... And they're always like, oh, I'm going to change him. And it's like, but you're not changing him. You're just sleeping with a guy that's racist and he knows he can get away with being racist because you're still in a relationship with him. Like it's, you're just fucking validating racist. But the reason I'm bringing this up is because this is something that happens a lot. And I'm very clearly what I'm just saying, it's wrong. Even now I still get people like telling me how lucky I am to be dating Mitch. And no, not for like cute, wholesome reasons. Yeah. Uh, But because they'll be like, oh, my God, like, you're so lucky to be with a guy that's, like, not sexist or racist to you. And it's like, um, how do we define luck? (laughs) It's not lucky, babes. Like, it wasn't like a lucky draw. Like, I chose to be with someone that isn't fucking racist. If he was racist, we wouldn't be dating. You know, I'll talk about, like, random things we do together, like, just, like, gossip or, like, you know, we were like watching a show that I like, or we were doing a face mask and people would be like, wow, a boy that respects your interests and wants to spend time with you doing things that you like doing, a boy that shares hobbies with you and like talks to you like you're a person and actually like treats you like you're on the same level as him. Sh- amaze, sh- where do you find this man? And it's like, oh, who are you guys dating? And look, not to victim blame. I know it sounds super victim blaming. It is obviously a different scenario when girls are in like an abusive relationship. There is obviously a power imbalance that I'm sympathetic to but just like women who consider themselves empowered like these like people that are doing well in life that are comfortable that like choose to partake in politics when it's convenient for them but then like date racist sexist men I have no sympathy for you and we could not be friends well yeah I mean like you said it's it's sort of a double issue like firstly you deserve better like yeah <laughs> that you don't have to be with someone who clearly it's causing you strife if you're talking about it on, on these forums if you're or, coming, or coming to, to me people. a random at that point i was 21 you're coming to a 21 year old with almost zero relationship experience like something is wrong then yeah. obviously and then secondly uh, it's not really a good look is it no it's just so like 
I don't know, it just lacks a lot of self-awareness. Like, don't you realize what a bad look it is to go to the only woman of color you know and then beg for her emotional labor to fix her relationship with a racist scumbag? Like, no. But let's come back to why we don't entertain, I guess, friendships or relationships with bigots. It's like, let's, let's tie this up a little bit. Look, it's true that there's a lot of criticism from the right of the left and from centrists as well. They're like, things are divisive and there's so much infighting in the left. And, you know, this is why we don't have unity. But I also think unity is overrated in that regard. Like, you can have class consciousness and worker solidarity with other people that are racist. That's one thing. That's completely different to being friends with them. And, like, tolerating someone you have to deal with, be it a coworker or a family member, is not the same as being close buddies with someone. And I think... When you are close buddies with someone that's racist, you're selling out your politics and you're selling out all of your friends that are part of that marginalized identity and they should mean more to you than your racist friend. And if they don't, maybe you should, you know, think about it a bit. You know, like at the end of the day, choosing to boycott racist, homophobic, transphobic, ableist, etc., like bigoted friends, it reaffirms, at least for us, our position of being really radical and uncompromising in our politics. And I think unpopular opinion as it is, you should be uncompromising in your politics. There is no middle ground. There is no middle ground when it comes to human rights. I mean, this is the part of the reason why this is the, the 50th episode topic, because I feel like that's what our, hopefully our, our project has been over the past like year and a bit showing that it's okay and it's good to be radical and uncompromising and you don't always have to water yourself down and your ideas and you know hopefully this is a space that has proven that yeah because like i think the world like especially liberalism really wants us to water down our politics because they're dangerous you know it's why like all of this is just one massive gaslighting project like to remove your radical nature, to make you feel like, you know, you don't deserve friends, you're a bad person, you're mean, you're unkind, you're aggressive, you're divisive. Like all of this is just a project to remove you from radical politics. And I think we're at the point now, hopefully if you've listened to us for 50 episodes where, you know, the natural progression of critical thinking is to be like, why don't they want me to do this? Why are like conservatives so hell bent in making me tolerate bad politics? And when you start to think about it that way, I feel like in a way it can become really empowering to like choose to say no to like shitty friendships and choose to cut out racists because it's a form of rebellion and it's like a form of resistance because in a world that's telling you that you have to conform to like this level of kindness, kindness, quote unquote, to like racist, not doing that is powerful. I choose like all the time, you know, I mean, obviously as a woman of color, I constantly get told how aggressive and mean and cold I am. And that used to really hurt me. But now I'm at a point where I'm like, I know I'm doing something right. If a white supremacist world finds me uncomfortable, then good. I want to be the kind of person that makes people like that uncomfortable. If I'm keeping people comfortable in this political climate, in this capitalist white supremacist world, then I'm doing something wrong. Because a lot of you who are reaching out clearly do want to end those friendships. You just need that final push. If you've, look, if you've gotten to the point where you're messaging me on the internet and saying how you kind of, you know, you you don't know what to do, you want to cut this person off, but you're not sure, you, you do want to cut them off. Like, you have given it a considerable amount of thought. You've written out a long story. Like, you're already there and you want to do it. And when you get to that point where you're like, I want to cut this off, you probably should cut it off. It's quite, oh, it's actually quite a few big steps to even be there in the first place, which you may not realize. But on top of that, I'm here to let you know that you're not a bad person for wanting to do that. And in fact, I think it shows an admirable sense of principle that if, at the end of the day, you choose what's right 
over like a friendship that probably is a friendship of convenience more than anything else. I mean, if you're not, if they're like really problematic in a lot of ways, then probably the only reason you hang out with them is because there is like a convenience to it. And I'm proud of you. And I'm proud of you if you're the kind of person who had to cut off relationships that you'll miss, but that you did because you know it was right, because you don't want to validate white supremacy and all the other isms that come with it because you don't want that to reflect on yourself and because you want to protect the other people in your life from that shittiness. I'm proud of you and you did the right thing. So just before we do our little outro, I just wanted to add a little note. Uh, Obviously, this is our 50th episode and we're super excited about it. And to celebrate, the next episode we're going to do is a Q&A special. So if you have any fun questions you want to ask us about literally anything, you can email them to us or you can message me or Mitch on Instagram and send it to us that way. I'll also put up like an Instagram story and stuff. Uh, If you follow me on social media, if you're in the Facebook group, like there will be threads and whatnot. But if you're just listening and you don't have me on social media, please email us any of your questions and we're going to collate them for a fun episode. It'll be good. Ask us literally anything. I'm very excited. I'm also very excited to thank our lovely, lovely listeners this episode. Uh, Specifically, we'd like to thank Johnny, Sarah Wallace, Kieran, Pia, Sarah Carcagno, Liz, and Katie. So thank you so, so much. If you thought our discussion today was interesting, thought-provoking, or something that you learned from, please consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Saliha. And if signing up isn't your thing, you can also donate to our PayPal link at paypal.me forward slash Saliha to support future episodes. Both the PayPal and Patreon links are in my Instagram bio, so you can check them out over there at Saliha Official. And we'll also have my link tree in the description. Uh, and give me a follow if you liked today's episode. And follow my Instagram at Mitch's.miscellanea for discussions around film, books, and music. Also, if you have any other comments or suggestions or you want to add to the discussion, you can DM me or you can email us. And if you want to send us questions, you can also email us here at here's the thing though podcast at gmail.com. We'll also put our email in the description. And please include your name, pronouns, and any other important info. Cool. Bye. Bye.